morning church <clears throat> greetings it's great to be together hey a question for you all as we begin uh, looking at God's word together if every prayer that you asked this week was answered in the exact way you asked what would look different about your life what would look different about our city what would look different about our world. I'm guessing for the vast majority of us, our food would be super blessed. We're pretty good at asking for that. But what about all the other prayers? What material difference would that make in our world and in our lives? I'm not asking this question to suggest to any of us in any way that our prayers only work when they're answered in the way we asked. Uh, I'm also not wanting to give us the impression that prayer is only about asking for things. I ask this question because the contents of our prayers reveal the priorities of our lives. The things we pray about or don't pray about, say a lot about what matters to us. Like, for example, Chelsea and I, we pray for our kids, for Charlotte and Alex and Lenny, and, and, and we pray about the baby boy that's on the way this summer, because that's really exciting for us. <laughs> I wanted to share that with you, my church family, so I stuck that in there. Um, we pray about what matters, though. And this is true about Jesus, too. The, the prayer life of Jesus and what Jesus prayed for shows us what mattered to him. And what matters and what mattered to Jesus should matter to us. And so today we're looking at a long prayer, John chapter 17. Many thanks to Jen for sharing that for already declaring God's word to us. To us, it's a, it's a long passage. I won't read it all again. But I do want us to make our way through that prayer, starting with verse 13, John 17, verse 13. Jesus prays this. I am coming to you now, but I pray these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy with them, within them. In this section... John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And I, I love to picture the scene. 
Jesus and his disciples, they were gathered in the upper room. They had just finished eating a, a wonderful meal. They were all sitting at the table reclining. There's two reasons I'm, I'm sitting at a table. One of them is it's a, it's a visible reminder that while Jesus was talking about these things with his disciples, uh, he, um, while I'm sitting at this table, it's a reminder Jesus was sitting at a table as well. Um, the other reason I'm, I'm going to talk about it in a little bit. Um, but Jesus was reclining at a table with his friends, praying these things for his disciples. And one of the things I love most about this prayer is how often and how clearly Jesus defines and explains exactly why he's praying what he's praying. He, he, he says six different times, so that, I pray this, so that, I pray this, that they may know. And, and, and I, I sometimes call this like preaching, where you're kind of praying and kind of preaching at the same kind of time. Jesus is preaching here. He's praying, but he's also teaching his disciples and teaching us through what he's praying. And so in this section, he's like, I'm praying these things so that, and he says, so that, they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now that sentence has got to be one of the most stunning sentences in the Bible. In our lives, we have the capacity to experience the same full measure of joy that Jesus did. The full Measure. And, and if John 17, if this passage wasn't so clear on that, I don't know if I could even have the sheer audacity to make that claim that we have the capacity to experience and live and have the full measure of Jesus' joy within our lives. Do you know? that Jesus wants you to have the same amount, measure, quality, and quantity of joy that he had. Now, this joy isn't some form of detached hyper-emotionalism. It's not like a, a spiritually bypassing elation. This joy isn't avoiding or ignoring the hurts and the pains in our lives. I mean, a few hours after praying this very thing, Jesus was in the garden sweating blood from anxiety as he was betrayed. The full measure of Jesus' joy in our lives doesn't mean no difficulties are coming, but it does mean that joy is possible through all the difficulties that do come. And Jesus is saying, I want you to have this joy. And so as we read and look at the life of Jesus, as we read about the way in which he loved and served people, Jesus wants us to know at the, in this prayer that he's offering us this compelling joy in every area of our lives. Now, I think Jesus knew when we hear joy, we may equate that to happiness. So right after Jesus prays that they may have the full measure, the complete amount of joy that I have, Jesus prays this. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
Okay, now again, let's picture the scene, reclining around a table. Now picture, imagine yourself as one of the disciples. John, for example. You know, Jesus, after the meal, sitting there with his disciples, you're John sitting right beside him, and Jesus is like, all right, guys, I'm going to pray. And we're told, you know, Jesus starts praying. And then he says, God, may they have the full measure of my joy. And you're like, yes, Lord, amen. I want full measure of joy. Amen. And then Jesus says, I've given them your word. And you're like, I know that's true. Yes, you have. And then Jesus prays, and the world has hated them. You're like, wait, 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 wait. Back up for a sec. What? The world, the, 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 oh, oh, the world hates? Uh, what, what, um, hmm? I, I prefer the, 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 the earlier half of that prayer, actually, Jesus. And then Jesus says, those who are my disciples belong to this world no more than I do. Which means for any of us that are followers of Jesus, we are not of this world in the same way that Jesus is not of this world anymore. Our home is different. Our priorities are different. Our lives are different And I don't know if we have been honest enough about this difference. I don't think we've been honest enough about that difference. You know, for so long, North American culture and Christian culture have been so enmeshed that many of us grew up in a world where we could kind of be both and it would never really stick out that much. Like, I know all the young people here think I'm old. I'm not that old. But even for me, growing up, everything was shut down on Sundays. There was no sports practices on Sunday morning. Parents were like, that used to happen? Like, we could kind of do a bit of a chameleon back and forth. And I don't know if we've been honest enough that we don't belong to this world any more than Jesus does. I don't know if we have wrestled with the words of Jesus' brother James seriously enough in James chapter 4 when he says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? And then he says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, Here's what this doesn't mean. Be a jerk. Be an enemy to the world. I want us to recognize in Jesus' prayer and in the scriptures, the animosity, the hatred, is a one-way street. There's no retaliation. All who follow Jesus lead with love and respond with love. Matt Smeathers, pastor in the States, he said, if you're faithful, the world will hate you because of Jesus. If you're a jerk, the world will hate Jesus because of you. And how often do we see someone acting terribly Rudely, someone acting so unlike the way of Jesus. And then when there's consequences, they cry out, persecution! It's like, no, you're being mean. You're being selfish. 
Stop! Like, let's not blame our bad behavior or perhaps our emotional immaturity on Jesus. Our lives are a witness to who he is, to how he loves, to how he lives. We follow his example. So how does this happen in our lives? How do we follow the example of Jesus in this world? That's exactly what Jesus talks about next in verse 16, verse 17. He again, he reminds us, they, that is us, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That is to say, just as Jesus moved into this world, we are to do the same. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. We move into the neighborhood. God's heart is not for us to hide away, run away, be insulated from the world, but rather to more deeply engage in the world. The starting point is to understand our home is in heaven. Like this isn't all there is. We should feel homesick here. We should have a longing for things to be different because all of this is temporary. And Jesus, I mean, if you read through this prayer, repeatedly, repeatedly says, they're not of this world as I'm not of this world. So the starting point is to understand our home is in heaven. And then Jesus says, what I think is the most aggressive confrontation on the cultural narrative of our society in this prayer. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. These nine words are an assault to the 21st century Western worldview that many of us have inherited by default, but all of us are immersed in if we live here. This is an aggressive confrontation to the world around us. Jesus prays we would be sanctified by truth. God's word is truth. Now to be sanctified, that means that we would be set apart, that we'd be made holy. Another way of saying that is to be sanctified is to be liberated from brokenness, to experience freedom, to experience transcendence. To be sanctified is to be shaped and transformed from what we are into something else, to be made holy. And that's what Jesus is asking for every one of us who follow him, that we would be shaped, transformed, liberated, freed, and made holy. He's asking that we would have this happen in our lives by God's truth. Now, before I go any further, I think it's important to say, to remind us, to declare that Jesus promises all of us that this sanctification process is a day-by-day process. 
It's a moving from glory to glory. The letter to the Corinthians would say it is a degree by degree by degree transformation that is led by the gracious spirit of God. God does this in us from the inside out. It's not violent. It's not domineering. It's not controlling. It's an invitation to participate with him. The scriptures say that God is so gentle, he will not break a bruised reed. God is so kind and sensitive that he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. So when God wants to sanctify us, it's this process of transformation. It may be very, very costly, but it's also very, very kind. And God wants to transform us by his truth. But I said this confronts our worldview in a pretty profound way because we all live in a world that holds as a fundamental, non-negotiable, essential truth that the key to experiencing liberation from brokenness and to live in freedom is experienced by self-fulfillment self-determination and it's directed by our own desires and wishes and is ultimately driven by our own internal sense of truth. Our cultural worldview holds that the key to living authentically is found through the expression of our inner lives and feelings and our truth. And our truth is what we make it to be. The phrase, my truth, is used all the time. I'm sure almost all of us in this room have either used it or heard someone in our lives use it. I used to mock it a lot. My heart's been softened. The Lord's working on me degree by degree by degree. But I do think it's a risky phrase to use because it suggests that truth can be personalized and oriented around each and every person. Now, by my truth, someone means my story, my perspective, my take, my memory. Like, I get get that. Um, I, I, I have some space for that. But what Jesus is showing and teaching us in this prayer is that there is an objective truth to the universe. There is an objective truth of the universe. And I know truth has always been a complex thing to explore, I mean, you read in John chapter 18, a couple sentences later, Pilate's like, ah, what is truth? But Jesus has taught us. And he has said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The truth at the center of the universe is Jesus and his life. Because he is the truth. In a world where almost every form of external structure is interpreted as oppressive and needing to be done away with. In a world that thinks to be a flourishing human, to be liberated, is done by uh, expressing and exploring and making our truth. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you experience transcendence and freedom by my truth which means what every person in this room is searching for, hope, 
transcendence, freedom, purpose, justice, intimacy, alignment. All of these things are experienced in the life and person of Jesus. What we are all searching for, what all of our hearts are longing for is not discovered by self-determination, but by self-denial. To be sanctified means we surrender our lives to live under the guidance and the direction of God's word. His never changing, his always gracious word. Whatever that means, whatever that takes and wherever that takes us. Now, if the one extreme the one extreme, you know, ditch, if you want to use that imagery. The one extreme, if, if the one extreme ditch with truth is that we orient it around our lives, the extreme other ditch is that we weaponize truth to those who may not understand or know. We take this truth and we use it as a sword, striking people. And that's why I think it's important to remind ourselves that the way in which the Lord moves in this world is gracious and kind and loving, patient, from the inside out, out of relationship. Many of us can often weaponize the truth to those around us. I think it's just important to remind ourselves that the only time God's truth is described as a weapon is against the evil one not against people. There's, I'm going off book. There's this verse in this prayer that we've looked at and it says, my prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And that difference, there's a subtle shift there that we can miss where it says, I don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. And there's this difference between the world and the evil one. And if we don't understand that, we will start to think the evil one is the world. And that's not the case. God doesn't want to remove us from the world. He wants to protect us from the evil one, but he wants us to love the world. To be engaged in this world, to care for this world. And when we understand that difference and we start to understand that some of the hatred is not the actual world, it's the evil one behind the world. We don't use the truth as a weapon against the world. We use the truth as a weapon against the evil one. We love and serve and care for the world around us. And Jesus' prayer for you Jesus' prayer for me is that we are sanctified, set apart, shaped by his truth. And then he prays this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one that we may be one as God is one. And if we're honest, the hard work of this passage is not so much understanding what it means, it's living it out. Being united, 
as God is united. And Jesus prayed for us, his followers, that we would experience God's truth and presence in such a way that unity would be the necessary result because of what he's doing in our lives. Which means, on the flip side of that, our inability to walk in unity with one another is a failure to align with what God's doing on the inside of our lives. Jesus prayed that we would be one as he is one. So what does that mean? Okay, in a church this size, it's nearly impossible to know everyone. I do, I, I genuinely do pray that the Lord would somehow give me the capacity to know everyone. That we could just live life together. I mean, God knows, you know, like, oh, Lord, just give me like a glimpse of that. It seems unlikely. Um, I do pray for it. Um, So what is unity for us as God's people here? It's not uniformity where we're all just robots with no opinions. It's not just all of us doing and being the exact same. It's far from that. The unity of, of the Bible is people from every nation, ethnicity, language group, age, all different kinds of people that are all oriented around Jesus, one people with one purpose. Biblical unity is love at work. It's risking together. It's community. We can't know everyone, but we must know some. At FAC, in this particular community, we've, we, we have chosen, we have prayerfully discerned as a community that, that unity for us as FAC is being committed to building a life that honors God, all for Jesus. That's what we have put at the bullseye of our unity, building a life that honors God, all for Jesus. And we believe that happens as we are connecting with God and with each other, as we're growing in our faith, as we are serving one another, and as we are sharing the message of Jesus to the world. Which means if we aren't doing those things, we are not being united. Are you connecting? Are you growing? Are you serving somewhere? Are you sharing the message of Jesus with someone? In a world that is so fundamentally fragmented, Jesus says the image of us being united would be so powerful that the people in this world would be like, oh my goodness, Jesus must be real because look at how committed those people are to life together. That's how powerful the visual of a people united are. Jesus, that's the force of apologetics in this world. If we live our lives together, following God. Friends, as clearly as I can say this, disciples that are concerned with the agenda of Jesus should be concerned about embodying unity in our lives. Because as we do this, the world will know that Jesus is God. As we lean into this together, the world will see that Jesus is who he says he is. Our commitment to express and live in unity is a testimony to God's presence in this world. Jesus prays we'd have his joy. 
that we'd be sanctified by his truth, that we'd be united in this. <clears throat> At FAC, we, um, we plan these series out way in advance, way in advance. We know who's preaching when. We've been planning and preparing. I've known I'm on this weekend for a long time. On February 11th, I was doing my devotions, <clears throat> and I was reading in James, Jesus' brother's letter, and I read this verse that like, it just struck me as so strong. It felt as though I had like, never read it before. It's James 2, verse 16. James 2, 16 says, If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? And it just struck me so strongly. James is saying, what good is it for you to give words of blessing, to pray for people, to pray and ask for things if you're not actually willing to do anything about it yourself? What good is it to say, be blessed, be well fed, pray for material needs and not do anything about it if you have the material needs to help it? To offer up thoughts and prayers as a casual sentiment without actually being willing to do the deep work of intercessory prayer. What good is it? And it challenged me so deeply because how often have I prayed about something where I'm not willing or I, I don't actually do anything about it? How about you? How often have we prayed for something? Be blessed, be well fed. Be this, be that. May Lord, may you provide this. Meanwhile, we have the answer to that prayer. We're not willing to do anything about it. James is saying it's nonsensical to pray about things if you're not willing to do the thing. It's challenging for me. I'm not showing us the challenge of this gap between our prayers and our actions to guilt us. I'm showing us this gap that we often feel because I want us to know that that gap doesn't exist with Jesus. When Jesus prays something, he does something. When Jesus prays for something, he is committed to that thing. When Jesus prays that we would have the full measure of his joy, that we would be sanctified, that we would be united, he is fundamentally committed to us experiencing that and living in that reality. And he longs to be a part of our journey, to lead us, to guide us, and to shape us. Jesus doesn't just offer up these thoughts and prayers and say, good luck. Jesus prays these things and says, I will be there every step of the way to help this be the reality of your life because I know I can help you in this. Jesus is committed to you. He prays these things for you and he wants to do these things with you. Now at the beginning of the message, I said there's two reasons I'm sitting. Uh, partially to remind us that Jesus was sitting at a table but the real reason is because I've been on quite a journey the last several months. Uh, in December, middle of December, I was preaching at this conference for the Alliance Pastors in Alberta. I was preaching on what happens when Jesus doesn't answer the prayers that you're expecting. I'm in front of, you know, several hundred pastors preaching this passage. And, and as I'm up there, my leg starts to go numb. 
I'm like, oh, that's weird. Keep preaching. And um, I'm like, okay, that's, that's a new thing. By my hip, just starts to go numb. Uh, the next week, it gets worse. The next week, it gets worse. Christmas week, kinked up, a lot of pain. Next week, it gets worse. First week of January, I start doing the usual things that I normally do. Physio, Cairo, massage. Just kind of just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, it's super confusing. At one point, my physio was like, Kyle, um, I'm really good at what I do. You should at least have like a little bit of improvement. It shouldn't be getting worse now. You need to go see your doctor. I went for breakfast with a friend from our church who's a doctor. And uh, he saw me and he's like, you need to go see your doctor. So I go see my doctor. Um, get a bunch of tests done. And um, <laughs> if, if there's an ultrasound tech in the room, um, when I was getting my ultrasound done, like getting the thing, I was like, whoa, what did you do to yourself? This is so much trauma. I'm like, I didn't do anything. It's just been hurting worse and worse. And she's like, oh, um, uh, you need to go talk to your doctor. <laughs> Not comforting. Although I will say the flip side of that, Katie, I think, if you're here, you were the MRI person. And you were a gift of God's grace. I love our church family. Um, but I meet with my doctor, and they start putting all these really scary things on the table as possibilities. It was like someone was reading WebMD to me. Not helpful. <laughs> Scary things put on the table. Life-altering things. Paralysis. Life-changing things. I'm like, will I ever be able to walk to hold my baby boy this summer? Those kinds of things being put on the table. If you've been around FAC the last several weeks, you have seen me up here. I've been preaching uh, on passages. In February, I preached on the story in Jesus' life when he was preaching. It says all the sick were brought to him and many were healed. Do you remember that passage? Because a couple days before that, I had gotten some imaging and I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be in the healed category, if I'm going to be in the gap for the rest of my life with this pain. I don't know. I don't know what my story is going to hold at this point. All these scary things were on the table. And then the following, or after that, I'm preaching on the Lord's Prayer, right? May your kingdom come. And I talk about as it is in heaven, where if you were really paying attention, you'll know I said there'll be no bad diagnoses given. Because I didn't know what my story was going to hold. And that's my attempt to live openly and honestly with my faith community. I'm a worshiper of First Lines Church like any of us here this morning. I'm just trying to be honest about that journey with Jesus in my life. Last several weeks, just poked and prodded and for several months, just given a whole lot more answers or questions than answers over and over. And then I'm preparing for this weekend where Jesus says, I'm going to give you the full measure of my joy. It's been the kind of pain that makes it hard for me to even like say the word joy, never mind experience a full measure of joy. And yet, I believe that when Jesus says something, he means something. And when Jesus says something, he's doing something. So I don't want to come across that I'm up here 
tone deaf, saying, joy is yours. Because I know how costly this can be. How scary it can even feel to open the door of your heart to the possibility of joy. To risk that. I know how hard that can be. I've been living in that world. Sit here. And, and, and I mean, if you've ever seen me preach, you, you should know how hard it is for me to sit while preaching. I think the cameramen are glad because I'm not moving all over the place, but it's hard for me. I sit here, just like any of us sitting here, worshiping Jesus, broken in so many ways and needing Jesus to sanctify me. I sit here needing a joy that transcends my capacity and understanding. And I need a truth that's bigger than my world to shape me. I sit here with pains from a lack of unity in so many ways, church. But a believing that Jesus wants us to be united together. But I sit here knowing that Jesus is fundamentally committed to my life, to pray for me, to give me his joy. And I have experienced him in ways that I never could have ever hoped or imagined or dreamt of. And I long for every single one of us this morning to know and to hear. I want you to know and to hear that Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you. He's committed to your life more than you are because he loves you more than you love yourself. Jesus is with us. You know, the last last two weeks have been really helpful for me. Uh, Answers have come. And all those scary things that were put on the table, they've all been taken off the table. Um, There's clarity. There's hope. Uh, I still got pain but I have like less pain than I have in a very, very long time. Uh, I'm moving in the right direction. Um, But I promise you, there is no amount of money you could ever offer me to not have learned about the joy of hearing Jesus pray for me in the dark night of my soul. I don't want any of you to have to experience the kind of pain that some of you live with, that I've had experience, but I want all of us to hear Jesus praying for you. I want you to hear him praying for you. I said at the beginning, our prayers in our lives, it's not just about if they, they, they don't just work if they're answered. Prayer reveals our priorities. Prayer moves us from seeing this world as a place to be fixed to, to helping us just see where God's moving. And I believe through the power of God's word that he's moving in our lives today to give us his joy. To shape us to become more and more like him and to be united more and more. Friends, I believe God is speaking to us this morning. My question for you is, are you willing to have the agenda of Jesus for your life be your agenda for your life? Do you hear him praying for you?
Do you hear him loving you and caring for you with whatever life might have been being brought your way? Because he loves you. So as we sing this next song, you guys can come forward if you want. As we sing this next song, hear Jesus who loves you so much praying for you. And open your heart to hear about the love that God has for you and make the agenda that he has for you be the agenda for your life because he loves you so much.